A quick note before we begin, the episode you're about to hear is the final episode of season two of the podcast, but season three is actually just around the corner. So if you're in Cape Town and you're catching this announcement before the 7th of October, then join us at 6pm on Friday, October 7th on UCT's Hidden Campus for the launch of season three. It'll be a short but wonderful evening of listening and socialising over wine and snacks, featuring an overview of the season by season three host Nkhobeleng Malloy, an address by arts journalist and DJ Atia Khan, and also a sneak peek of the season ahead of its official release the following week. So that's 6pm on Friday the 7th of October 2022 on UCT's Hidden Campus in Gardens, Cape Town. And we've put a link to book your free tickets to the launch in the show notes for this episode. And now, on with the show. The body remembers more than through the head. Nerve and vessel, artery and synapse all carry information from point to point, suffusing muscle, bone and cell with a plethora of image and sound, a flicker of light, a scream or a touch. Sometimes we wish that a delete button might annihilate some of this information, but the body instead stores relentlessly, file upon file, bottomless cabinets of memory, individual and collective. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 8, featuring academic, curator, choreographer and director of the ICA, Professor Jay Pather. In this episode, which marks the end of season two, we dive into Pather's visceral and haunting dance work, Body of Evidence. What does the body do with this ebb and flow of knowledge? What does a collective nation's memory do with history, with the paradox of the memorial, that we never forget, that we honour and move on, that we lie? Why do the memories reappear in so many violent forms? Body of Evidence was originally commissioned for the F&B Dance Umbrella in 2008, where it was performed on the 19th floor of an old medical centre, the Lister Building, in downtown Johannesburg. And it's been performed many times since, with different casts and in different sorts of venues, including at the National Arts Festival in 2009, at the Theatre Arnhitzbeer Festival in The Hague in 2010, and at the Durban Playhouse in 2009, performed by Pather's company, Suela Sonke Dance Theatre. It's this iteration of the work at the Playhouse that we focus on today. Body of Evidence was conceived as a journey through the body, starting with the brain and moving to the throat, the ear, the spine, the ribs, and finally towards the feet. The work is a beautiful, disturbing, disorienting evocation of a fragmented mind. Although as audience members we witness only one act of explicit violence in the 90-minute work, 
Every gesture and scene seems suffused with either the suggestion of violence or the threat of violent flashbacks that erupt from a brutalized psyche. In today's episode, Patha draws us into the intricate workshop process from which Body of Evidence emerged, and into the works grappling with precarity, with memory, with the inexpressibility of pain, and with the long after effects of trauma lodged in the body, for the individual, and indeed for the nation. But we begin, as we always do, much further back. Okay, so my name is Jay Patha. I'm an artist um, and an academic, and I direct the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, where I'm also a professor. My name is actually Jayendran Patha, and um, my mum, as far as I know, named me, and Jayendran is meant to mean, mean tranquility in um, Sanskrit. You know, Tamil... Uh, which is my mother mother tongue, the tongue of my my great 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 grandparents. Uh, Tamil is um, the first language out of Sanskrit. So I think Jandran comes from that and um, yeah and so it's so funny because there was a clear moment when I shortened it to J and it was actually in my first year in drama in um, at the university and it I don't know I think I think it really is a conflation of many things about a certain kind of embarrassment with the name I can't say that it was just for convenience I think Jay just came out of my mouth when we were in a circle asking our names because you know the the in 1977, when I was first year at the university, um, the the levels of embarrassment around your name and your identity and all of that were pretty high. I grew up my, um, you know, when I was nine months old, my very, very feminist mother. <laughs> Uh, with uh, a kind of a grade four education in um, picked us picked five of us up and left my dad um, my da- my dad was an activist and uh, you know a very profound activist and a you know very uh, highly politicized and and over the years has you know had a great impact on me but my mum I think wanted another kind of relationship with him. It was it was quite incredible for me, and it, it has stayed with me, you know, all my life. That someone could have the courage to to not have a career, a profession, nothing, but to be sure that that life was not what she wanted. Um, that you know, whatever that compromised relationship, personal relationship with my father was. So I grew up uh, in the main in a one bedroom, uh, one bedroom, not even a one bedroom flat, a one bedroom in the middle of Durban uh, on the corner of what used to be called Grey and Beatrice Streets in a building called Grey Court. And um, so I spent my childhood there and my mum was very 
careful about putting us all through school and really, you know, giving us all the necessities around reading and and all of that. And she, even when I was four, I think she put me in some kind of a school, some kind, even though she barely could afford it. And she cleaned houses and looked after children and sold samosas. Um, she got some allowance for my dad, but not much. So I grew up, yeah, I, grew, I, I had the most brilliant childhood. <laughs> it was quite amazing. Uh, it was very, we were, you know, we were very poor, but I was surrounded by so much life. I was I, in, right in the middle of the city. We, were, we lived opposite a hotel called the Himalaya Hotel, which had the most amazing scenes, this kind of ballroom dancing, and I remember the you know, and, and the way it used to change, the evening always, evenings always started off with so much promise and women in taffeta dresses and it was incredibly romantic, that sense of a Saturday at six o'clock when, or seven o'clock when the, you know, you could feel like the tension was mounting and people getting ready to go to this thing and we would watch uh, from the one window, we had one window that we all took to um, watching out the window. Now, of course, is to simply um, I do, I do hold very fondly those kinds of really that 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 strong sense of romance and, uh, but but also the 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 sense of um, paradox. You know, the real paradox of this kind of romance coming out of such such decrepit living. Yeah, so it was. It was. I, I think it. 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 It's. It has stayed with me all my life. I think that sense of being in the city and being in such difficulty, but feeling so safe and so held. And people often ask me because throughout the, my entire life, after that, I've always lived. Every time I had a choice, I always chose to live in the middle of the city, and the city has always, you know, held my imagination and constantly feeds me. in Katie's book that as part of your training maybe as a university student there was this non-nativizing of your accent mm. and the way and your articulation right was that at university yes it was at university I mean look you know the the it was very well intentioned and I must say especially during apartheid I can't I can't deny the value of not speaking with uh, my native kind of accent or native South African stroke Indian accent, whatever that might be. So during that time, uh, we were, you know, as part of our drama training, we went to something called a language laboratory. And only some of us were chosen <laughs> to go. And I spoke with quite a heavy Indian accent. And then I was sent to a language laboratory to kind of squeeze out the last little bits of um, a kind of a Tamil or uh, Indian accent, uh, which, um, as I said, at the, uh, at the time, it was actually very useful, because I'm not sure how many posts I would have got if I didn't speak, if I spoke in a, you know, in a kind of an Indian accent and I talk like that. And, you know, if I did 
there is an assumption of a certain degree of learning that comes with a kind of a faux English accent or whatever this is. I don't even know what it is. We, I, I remember, it, well, it was called the, the, the Queen's English or the right, it was RP, right pronunciation. Um, you know, which many years later, I began to feel it's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I struggled. I struggled a lot. And I, I also struggle a lot with coming to terms with my own family, like my mother, for example, who is a great and an amazing teacher. And, you know, she's got standard two education and she, she you know, and a, and a very profound kind of Tamil accent. So you, you struggle with a kind of a value system uh, as a result of that. And you go through so many um, levels of schizophrenia about who you are and where you begin and how do you how do you fit in and how do you fit how does your art fit in as well and who you're making your art for and that kind of references cross references in much of my work I think I think that the, I was so lucky throughout my school and the university, my early university, despite what I had to say about the language laboratory, was incredible. The the my formative years of education were 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 just quite remarkable. I mean, in in high school, for example, in um, in Clarewood, yeah, I was um, I was in a Rabindranath Tagore play at university. By the time I was in second year, I was studying concepts like metafiction and uh, Marxist theory and existential theory as well. And we we had we had the most eclectic bunch of lecturers, you know, people that were avowed Marxists and people that were avowed formalists. Um, and our drama department was was quite also quite something else, you know. I, you know. I, talk about the language laboratory but we we did produce the most amazing theater and we also had a lot of connections with the kind of black consciousness theater that was happening with like the blood knot and people like benji francis and uh who provided that layer of culture that went along with social activism and of course my in my milieu they were all the all the actors like Jane I do and um, Preg's governor was in my class, Alison Lazarus. You know these these incredibly highly principled and highly politicized and in incredibly steeped in cultural work as well. Um, so I was surrounded by <laughs> the best people. Already at that time, and I, I do remember in my third year watching a rainforest, Cunningham's rainforest, and <clears throat> admittedly a large part of the class that was watching it was like, what the hell is this? And I remember feeling so, um, I think it was joy that I felt, you know, it was pure it was pure joy that there was almost like a recognition of what was in my head. That kind of non-narrative stream of consciousness, um, non 
non-character driven, none of that, but just that sense of seething consciousness. Pather's immersion in the non-linear, non-narrative world of Merce Cunningham's dance work was one of the early seeds of an interdisciplinary focus that took firmer shape over the course of his master's degree, which he pursued at New York University in 1982 on a Fulbright scholarship. But fast forwarding to NYU, I began to realize that if I stayed with theater or even if I stayed with dance, that was the problem, that I needed to be madly eclectic and interdisciplinary. And that was the amazing thing about NYU at that time. It was just fantastic. You could, like, I could jump from one, one program to another and pretty much shape my own program. And it just served me beautifully. I, I was, you know, next thing I knew, I was doing courses with Richard Schechner and the performance studies department while doing choreography de- courses with the dance department and doing some like you know um, advanced directing courses in theater and so the rest of um, the rest of the uh, my university years my NYU years were they were quite quite phenomenal I mean and I and I think and this is also something that I'd like to convey to students because at the time it's almost not what you identify as joy. You know, you're not having a good time. You're not laughing. <laughs> you're not. You're not like, you know, screaming and shouting and getting drunk and being being raucous and having a good time. But you, it's a few years later you realize what a good time you had. It was a different kind of joy. It was a different kind of sense of completing and really finding the most unexpected answers in the most unexpected places. I um, I was asked to apply to the United Nations for a for a for a PhD grant and I really you know at this I always think I should have just stayed and done it but I I don't know whether I would have come back to South Africa and I remember at the interview at the Fulbright interview them you know thinking well what a stupid thing for them to think that I would actually want to not come back to this country because it's my country and in any event everything that I was doing was geared towards this country why would I not want to yeah and I, I I had that moment that when I thought about it and because also uh, my my father died and in 1984 and I needed to come back to the funeral but I could have gone back to New York to finish my thesis but I didn't go back and I just finished it while I was in South Africa um and I think I don't I, I never regret that decision. I mean, I do regret not at that time doing a PhD or something, uh, but I don't I don't regret it because I think that the hard realities again of South Africa and then, you know, doing doing productions in South Africa and then going to the University of Zululand and all of that faltered whatever it was that I was trying to do with my art and giving it that kind of gritty reality. Those formative years um, really, really laid laid the ground. And so 
coming back and staying in South Africa for all that time just gave me that kind of grittiness to to test this and especially to test it with regards audiences because it's all very well to be influenced by these international movements and to make art in that kind of way but how does it actually make sense to a world that I wanted to make sense with which is you know the people of this country Body of Evidence arose out of this need to respond to and reflect the complexities of everyday life in South Africa. But it emerged in particular out of Pather's work in the 90s and early 2000s on trauma and interpersonal violence. I'd written stuff for many years from 1998 onwards and early 2000 in particular, referencing something I had done in the early 90s in connection with a forensic scientist, Dr. Leonard Lehrer, around uh, what he was finding as uh, trauma uh, injuries caused by blunt instrument, which made him deduce that they were coming as a result of interpersonal violence. And one of the statistics that came out was that for every one political death, there were nine women that were killed by someone they knew. So that was quite a stark thing that began to uh, fest in my head and created a production called Unclenching the Fist with Jazz Art. So that was what was happening in my head. And then I thought of, I wanted to do a work quite a, but I still, I wanted to do an elegant work, I thought, um, because I've been working with um, Gray's uh, anatomy, Gray's drawings, which I was really fascinated by in terms of its kind of, its colonial kind of uh, grammar of, of looking at the body as one, this objective thing. And not with all the seething subjectivity going on around it. And especially the kind of cross-section of the ribs and all that. At that time I was doing a lot of site-specific work and then I wanted to use these projections as a site. So I knew that. I knew that I wanted them projected huge on the floor or on walls and to create these very elegant dance works inside of them. And so that's how I kind of constructed it. I normally work with a workshop, what is called a kind of a, broadly <clears throat> a workshop process. And the workshop process is something that is used by many theatre practitioners and has been in the kind of South African milieu of cultural production from the 1980s or 70s, actually. But what I had done was that what I do do was to create something called um, uh, what I call ritual in performance kind of procedures. It's a very stripped down understanding of ritual where you gather a group of people or in in this performers and they engage in certain exercises that are non-threatening but they just have a way of developing a kind of a common consciousness in the room a kind of a safety net 
in theatre term, they can be called trust exercises. It's kind of like how how do I trust you, or how do I trust this environment enough to be able to tell you my deepest darkest secrets, or not tell it to you, but to dance it, or to talk through it, or whatever. But these ritual procedures, these rehearsal ritual procedures, are quite arduous and quite specific. You know, sometimes they might involve looking at someone in the eye for about an hour or 45 minutes or something. And um, so it's, it, it brings up a great deal of um, emotion. Now, the one thing that I did do was that I began to work with trainees for Suela Sonke, who we were training at that time. They ranged in age from early 20s, and there was actually a 70-year-old uh, John Cartwright, who I also worked with. But the bulk of these dancers, which who were mainly kind of kind of youngish, up to about 35, um, when I was working with them, the, the kinds of images were also grabbing towards a kind of a prosthetic approach, you know, where it was almost like it was not enough, the body was not enough, so people had to use plastic bottles as masks and extensions of their arm and uh, bandages around their face and people worked with rice and pieces of bread and so 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 the the, the exercises would create an atmosphere of probing certain levels of your consciousness and then you were translating that into movement and then we would have a discussion around um, violation or incidents of violence and they were asked to recall that I would always talk about it in terms of color or texture or metaphor because I was I really was anxious that it moved quite far away from you know talking about well mrs. so-and-so had that I wanted it to be an amalgam of 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 thoughts and ideas but you know the the specificity kind of did come through though. it came through in the kinds of objects that one would use and well <laughs> any notion of something restrained and elegant a series of movements uh, to kind of beautifully evoke the kinds of held trauma in the body um, quickly went out the window and it was so funny because it, not funny but it was interesting I suppose that it was because of this workshop process that produced that went quite quickly to a kind of a truth which could not be hidden in any kind of like you know elegant and beautiful movement and so it became to be quite raw this rawness of gesture and object which Patha and the cast developed over the course of the workshop process is reflected from the opening moment of Body of Evidence in its incongruous imagery and often jarring movements. The first thing we see on the darkened stage of the Durban Playhouse is five men spaced out in a semicircle, wearing white boxer shorts and standing in plastic baby baths. They're standing limply, flopping over every now and then, until they're propped back up again by a woman played by Ntombi Gasa in a domestic worker's dress and a long fur coat. I would like to talk to you about geraniums. 
Front and center of the semicircle is an old man in a suit and tie, dark glasses and a hat, played by John Cartwright, the only character in the performance to address the audience directly, and who, in this moment, without obvious explanation or connection, enters into a monologue about geraniums. But they even come back after fires as well. They're easy to grow too. You just take a cutting, put it in some soil in a pot for a while, keep it watered. One of the things we were dealing with in terms of the idea of body of evidence is this notion of memory being, um, being taken up within the cellular structures of the body. And um, we constructed a monologue, John Cartwright and I, initially, around this notion of foreignness, replacing flowers or bringing foreign flowers, etc., etc. It began to be simply an exercise in inanity, if you want, uh, the banal kinds of conversations with which the, I mean, in, in his case, the colonial body uh, attempts to institute forgetting. A long time ago, some people took some of these flowers to Europe, and now they think English geraniums, Swiss geraniums, and so on, but they're actually pelagoniums. So I was just playing with that idea of, you know, banality and the idea of the silly debate about flowers and foreign flowers, um, then morphing as the body remembers and trips and cannot. It's almost as if as the body becomes more and more wasted, which is what, you know, John was playing with as the body kind of deteriorates. It cannot help but um, have these these terribly violent encounters kind of seep through. James Wood did the soundtrack and, you know, he was adamant that they, they were meant to be these uh, very specific speakers that are, surround the audience. So in the main, they, they, are, they walk into a kind of a a soundscape that locates them in something that uh, forces, um, I would imagine that forces a kind of in-your-gut kind of attention. But it is undercut by John talking about flowers and the particularities about geraniums. So I, I also do that quite a lot, that this kind of, you, you go from the banal, uh, you know, and this kind of ridiculous banter into this young person that's in that environment trying to figure this out. This young person is performed by Mkhalisin Komonde, who watches Cartwright for a moment and then wanders slowly around the men standing in their baby baths, as if considering, as academic Catherine Cole suggests, his own disparate selves on display. And indeed, it's the traumatic, chaotic scenes from this character's mind that play out sometimes slowly, sometimes feverishly over the next 90 minutes. The pulsating, buzzing sound that reverberates through the theatre as soon as Cartwright steps away triggers Nkomonde's frantic movements, 
set against the drawing of a brain projected large scale on the screen behind him and also onto the floor. So this this referencing the brain at that point becomes quite important. This kind of figuring out where thought arises is really about understanding then that there are parts of our body that where synapses generate certain archival memory that we have no control over and that the body opens itself to to these these moments of of great clarity and then great confusion so so then the two dancers start enacting what i i you know because it's against the skull i was you know i i was affected there by a certain testimony i read about um, aspects of torture during apartheid Suggestions of violence woven into the work emerge as much through action, sound and image as they do through objects, like in the appearance moments later of a strange, almost regal figure performed by Neliswa Rusharalang. She wears a 19th century style crinoline dress and is accompanied by an entourage of men with red onion sacks over their heads, who hold onto long bandages wrapped around Rusharalang's stiffly composed neck. It's an image, Patha explains, that arose from workshop discussions on spatial violence. She came up with this uh, image of when she was sitting on a bench and a, you know, a, a white woman was sitting next. Uh, she, a white woman was already sitting and she sat on the bench and she watched how her neck, how this, this woman's neck stiffened and her entire upper body stiffening. So, she worked with the image of uh, bandages, a, a kind of a bandaged neck and a bandaged head. Um, but she she was working with the sense of tautness and 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 was very interesting because she was talking less about the violence on her, but what the violence that the woman was doing on herself. But that entrance of nearly spawns this whole kind of another way that the body is operating a kind of a sea change in the way the body has to absorb and that's when the gumboot dance happens Percussive slapping of the gumboot dance that breaks out bears all sonic resemblance to the traditional form, but none of the visual markers beyond the boots themselves. Instead, the five male dancers wear lilac-coloured plastic buckets over their heads and lacy white bras around their chest, and their wrists hang loosely from their arms. With, with, with many of these inclusions, it's not me kind of saying, oh yeah, and now we will have the Gambo dance and, you know, as colonial forces arrive. It's, it's something that, as a result of talking through some issues of violation, that one of the dancers then picks up on the Gambo dance and then does it with a bucket on their head or, you know, a bra or, you know, for, for, for kind of these very strange and mysterious sources which i kind of hang on to and hold on to and and then reposition 
Throughout the ensemble dances, the duets and hard-to-place apparitions, the projections of joint and bone continue on the massive screen behind, interspersing Gray's original black-and-white drawings with negatives of these same images that glow on the backdrop with a ghostly kind of blue. The thing about those drawings is that they're quite eloquent in terms of what is happening underneath the skin. So, you know, when you really see that these two quite quite strong pieces of, of bone are being held together quite flimsily. Just the fragility of those joints that could go at any time, that could break, that could hurt, that could result in... Uh, immobility. So I wanted to show the body uh, or, and, and these references to the body as a combination of strength and a great deal of vulnerability, you know, a, a great deal of, of, of precarity. Because when also that when one, one constructs the case around violence, you think of hard bodies, you know, hurting other vulnerable bodies, but whether we are perpetuators of the of the violence, of the contained violence, comes out of, a, of an extremely precarious and, and vulnerable body. The rhythm of the movements are not, um, are not even. That's for sure. And th that's a whole other series of workshops which I do around um, space and time and rhythm. And particularly around time, I'm quite specific about understanding time as not the time in a minute or in an hour, not that kind of measured time, but to understand time as this ebb and flow of consciousness. So, so, I mean, it's a, it's a simple idea around subjectivity, but to get you to, to understand it in terms of the body and how the body thinks or how the body can move in relationship to that heightened subjectivity is a major step for dancers to take. You know, as we know, when you play, uh, you know, like in musical theatre, for example, you you remember the tune afterwards and that tune has almost always or always a four beat or an eight beat yeah so one two three four five six yeah hey and that that evenness gives one a sense of security and in many of these in, in musical theatre, of course, no matter what you're watching, you could watch the worst kind of apocalypse. As long as you feel contained in that musical rhythm, you can walk out of the theatre recommending it for people to come back and go and see it again. So I, I, try, to, I try to dislodge that from people's, from performers' minds. So it doesn't fall into any a discernible rhythm. So you do have a sense of eccentricity of individuals of of a of a of a person. And I suppose that's what gives it its kind of erratic nature.
The most explicitly violent moment in the performance arises when a remote-controlled sports car in flashy metallic pink starts pestering the character of Siabonga Mflongo, whizzing round and round his feet in the middle of the dance sequence. Mflongo tries to move the car out of the way, but it keeps coming back, until suddenly the two dancers alongside him pull out sledgehammers and smash the car into tiny pieces. The moment was even more dramatic in the list-building iteration of the work, where the intimacy of the space meant that the audience could hear the sounds of the car and the tinny dance music it kept playing on repeat before being brutally destroyed. I think the, 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 <clears throat> the important thing here is, as much as that we are focusing about on the car being hit, is to understand the violence of wealth and um, wealth that... that um, that is conspicuous. Uh, you know, this this kind of conspicuous consumption that South Africa seems to be obsessed with. I mean, it is incredible how how obsessed we are with the showing of wealth, whether we have enough of it or not. And I think that sh- that that idea of driving this car that you feel like you've got and you therefore then own the road and you own bodies and you was something that I find, you know, I've always found incredibly violent. The single voice of the Atan, the Muslim call to prayer, bleeds into a chorus of plaintive voices that signal the return of John Cartwright's character. Now infirm and losing his mind, he's ushered on stage in a wheelchair and lapses into his geraniums monologue once more, except this time the flower's botanical lineage becomes unravelled by a confession of torture. I'd always been wanting to readdress this, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's, um, you know, very reason for existing. But it, you know, there was just so much coming out of the cast that the reliance on the testimonies became smaller and smaller and smaller. But I still wanted to bring it in because I think that's kind of a backbone for what I feel is the kind of continued violence. Um, because we're not addressing violence, we're not in this country, we're not addressing the inheritance of violence. Those testimonies for me are very, very haunting because they're like an un- untended soul that exists in our, in our society. I think at that point, one has, for, for me anyway, one has a sense of a kind of a national topography. And then going to this weekend special um, is about the person, these two 
young men um, who are thinking about going out and it's you know it was it's like on the eve of something and that this promise of joy and it's all something that has stayed with me from the time I was young I think looking out through my <laughs> through the little window at the uh, in my in in our little flat at this the Friday night of going out and the promise of going out and the promise of joy in the midst of all this abjection Pepper's focus on the intimate and the personal is taken into the confines of the home, represented on stage by three makeshift structures that the dancers step into, one made of chicken wire, another a piece of perspex, and the third a reed mat turned on its side and curled into a tiny circular enclosure. Ultimately, it's just about the fact that these national violences which we hear about in statistics, etc., when they're when they are sucked into the home and sucked into these small spaces, how impossible it must be for the body to be able to survive and hold all of that and not lash out. I'm not trying to condone any of it at all, but it's to say that when you suck all that national historic violence into these tiny spaces and when it erupts, it erupts with such intensity. From behind the reed mat, we hear groans and then screams that grow louder and louder. The sound, it would seem, of a body being severely beaten, although we can't see the cause. And then, inexplicably, a pair of rubber diver's flippers is thrown into the air from behind the mat, and almost as soon as the flippers hit the floor, the screams stop abruptly. The audience laughs, but nervously, not knowing quite what to do with this horrific scene met with such an incongruous end. But for Pather, even in its absurdity, or perhaps because of it, the image of the flippers gets somehow to the core of embodied trauma. For me, it's kind of a body morphing into something, going to another person, going into, you know, where you leave who you are uh, as a result of your this environment and you just become this impossible to reach. You can't even be touched in your most sensitive area, the underneath of your feet, because you've got this thick plastic armor and you can't, um, you, you know, you can't, you can't even feel the ground anymore. In the final scene of Body of Evidence, many things happen at once. The regal figure with the stiffened neck re-enters with loaves of bread tied to the train of her dress that drag along the floor. The men with onion sacks draped over their head march awkwardly on stage with flippers on their feet that slap the floor as they go. Mkhalisim Komonden and Tombi Gasa perform a duet that might suggest love, support or anger, or perhaps all of these things and John Cartwright reappears to wash and scrub the flippered feet of one of the dancers sitting on a chair in the background. In an echo of Adrian Fluck, the Minister of Law and Order under Apartheid, and his acts of repentant foot-washing in the early 2000s.
when Mozart's Requiem fades out, this multitude of characters and activity go with it, and we're left only with the sounds of breathing and with the character of Mkhalisin Komonde standing alone in the dark. Catherine Cole writes that it's in this final moment that we realise that all of this, all of the beautiful and confounding imagery, the haunting sounds and disorienting apparitions over the course of the performance, have actually been a tour through one man's mind and body. One senses acutely, Cole writes, that this is not the end. What we have witnessed is a recurring cycle. Maybe I can ask you, that's a good point to ask you to be the director's next. Okay. The body remembers more than through the head. Nerve and vessel, artery and synapse all carry information from point to point, suffusing muscle, bone and cell with a plethora of image and sound, a flicker of light, a scream or a touch. Sometimes we wish that a delete button might annihilate some of this information, but the body instead stores relentlessly, file upon file, bottomless cabinets of memory, individual and collective. What does the body do with this ebb and flow of knowledge? What does a collective nation's memory do with history, with the paradox of the memorial, that we never forget, that we honour and move on, that we lie? Why do the memories reappear in so many violent forms? How does it feel to read that so many years later? Do you, do you feel a sense of, I don't know, things sitting with you differently today? Yeah, I, I, unfortunately it doesn't sit differently. I remember for as long as I can uh, feeling like that. Um, you know, I, if if I want to take my radar and my eyes onto something else, if I think about maybe what students are producing, um, how decoloniality has settled so interestingly and so viscerally in the kinds of work that students are doing. Um, there is a measure of, you know, dare I say it, hope, or there is there's something incredibly optimistic that that's our capacity to create and, and to develop and to have these visions. But our country has not dealt with its violence and it hasn't dealt with it for 500 years and it continues to not deal with it. And not even by accident, it deliberately doesn't deal with it. It uh, is, you know, our, our, our political will is now all about either how to make money and to, to be corrupt 
or how to avoid corruption. So, you know, we're not, we haven't even left the gates <laughs> in this race. We haven't even left the gates. We're still trying to get all the horses and the jockeys to behave and to, you know, stay in their lane and not to cheat. And, you know, we're still, we're still there. We haven't even run this race. We haven't even gotten to the first 100 meters. I mean, you know, the kinds of spaces I'm describing in Body of Evidence are are breeding grounds for 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 this replication and this this kind of unknowing quality are of of some of this violence we haven't even begun to start dealing with just even the fact of housing you know we haven't even dealt with the uh, transport and the reliance on transport and how people make their make their way and make their money so I, I, I'm not quite sure how, how prepared we are to even deal with this issue of race and then the issues of violence and how it's contained in these small spaces. So unfortunately, you know, reading that paragraph um, is, it, it still resonates and it resonates because it's unattended to. I can't see, I don't know how it is being attended to nationally. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, <laughs> but I don't know, uh, you know, and, and terrifyingly, the, our statistics around gender-based violence is a, is, a, is, a, is, is a really important barometer because it, it is kind of, you know, it's literally what Fanon speaks to about how state violence and nation violence is is best understood through interpersonal violence. The way art reflects on this is shifting. I mean, that that there's no doubt, and thank God for that. I mean, the, it the, all that is is shifting because this kind of like just staying in inside of the trauma uh, is. Um, you know, is exhausting. It's exhausting for the artists and it's particularly exhausting for the audience. So these new moves, these new 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 ways of simply looking to our practice as spiritual healing, as uh, as spaces for 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 dialogue and for discourse, all of that is 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 certainly coming much more to the fore. And it really, really does have to, you know, we sh we should be talking about exuberance we should be talking about living beyond trauma so this 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 idea of orientating yourself with with other kinds of realities is something that's been taken up by artists quite a lot and we find that in the curation of the various festivals that there is a sense of that and it is also it is also a generational thing i think that people of my generation are more apt to have a sense of a kind of, um, you know, a deferred dream because, you know, the 1994 moment was such a moment of like infinite possibilities. And within four years, or six years, hopes were, were dashed. Um, and that, that, that kind of sense of what has happened and that catching our breath at the inertia um, and the lack of movement is something I think that may thankfully, <laughs> hopefully, just be generational. And the millennials are wanting to create real spaces for art as healing practice um, that, that, that is able to 
take us out of the out of the morass. But I must say, more and more as I as I grow older and more mature, it's it's exhausting. I've become more and more exhausted by this because it's it's unending. And I think that the you know because I think a large part of the country is exhausted because the country is still still hand, dealing with such such basic difficulties. And so I feel like it's very important. It's really, really important for me to get out uh, quite often, more often than I, I would have imagined. Could you see yourself living somewhere else now? Um, I still, you know, I still struggle with that. I mean, if you asked me this question 20 years ago, I would have went, no, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real choice to stay here and to develop whatever one can. Um, I can't really see myself living somewhere else, but I can see myself staying for long periods. Yeah, if it if it really wasn't so damn difficult, it wouldn't. There would be no question about it. But uh, more and more, I am feeling like, yeah, I do. I do have to keep going in and out. Uh, yeah, we we live in a country that's unresolved. And that's the end of that. The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It's produced and edited by me, Catherine Bull. Music and sounds in this episode are from Jay Pather's Body of Evidence, performed at the Durban Playhouse in 2009 by Suela Sonke Dance Theatre, and sound designed by James Webb. Additional sounds and music are from Merce Cunningham's Rainforest. This marks the official end of season two, but as I noted at the top of the episode, season three is just days away. Join us for the public launch of season three on Friday the 7th of October if you're in Cape Town, or else check back in again on the 13th of October for the release of season three's introductory episode. Until then, thank you, as always, for listening.